The O. Henry story, The Gift of the Magi, is one of the most timeless American short stories. I've wanted to record it as a Christmas present for my listeners for a long time, but the language in it is archaic and the storytelling style is stilted. I've tried to update it in a way that'll make it accessible while still preserving as many of O'Henry's original words as possible. The effort is partly successful, but I hope you'll enjoy it and enjoy your Christmas. And now I give you The Gift of the Magi. The Gift of the Magi by O'Henry Revised and updated by J. Daniel Sawyer one twenty five seventy five eighty eighty five and two pennies one dollar and eighty seven cents that was all and fifty two cents of it was in pennies pennies saved one and two at a time by haggling with the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied pennies rolled up in paper and tape and socked away in a shoebox under her side of the double bed with the ratty covers she counted it three times and always it came out the same one dollar and eighty seven cents that's all there was and tomorrow was Christmas. If they'd lived out in the country, she might have managed, trading favors with the neighbors for some yarn to knit or some leather to work for finery. But they made their home in the dingy city, choked by its throngs of anonymous people who neither knew their names nor cared whether they lived or died. Life in New York in 1932 was much more a matter of smiles between a soft, constant stream of tears and frustrations than the other way around, but Della normally bore the stresses and slights of the time with quiet dignity and grace. However, after six months of working every angle she could to save pennies here and there towards her goal, she'd only managed a dollar eighty-seven. It might as well have been no more than a nickel. There wasn't anything else for it. Della felt her eyes burn as the tears ran down her face, her shame no longer containable. Her tears flowed into her lap as she sat on the threadbare couch in the furnished, eight-dollar-a-week flat. It wasn't quite a beggar's hovel, but it had the ramshackle air of being half a step away from mendicancy. After sitting in it for a few moments, it was hard to shake the impression that it would take nothing more than a soft, accidental shove to turn it from a home into a storage locker in a slum. The vestibule on the ground floor of the rooming house held a letter box into which no letter would go, and an electrical call button from which not even an angel could coax any more a ring. Beneath the call button was a yellowed, tattered, typewritten card bearing the disused moniker, Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been an announcement to the wind during the heady days before the crash, when prosperity netted the young couple within more than $30 per week. Now the fortunates in the failing building were among those whose jobs had merely shrunk, rather than disappearing altogether. $20 a week was all that Mr. Young could bring home now, and he was relieved to have even that. But the frugality of the times had both of them thinking that perhaps the Dillingham on the card should be contracted to a more modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim, and embraced with great relief and greater kisses by his wife, 
the Della whom we've so recently left crying in their shared living room. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with a powder rag. She stood by the tattered but always well-bleached lace drapes and gazed at a pompous gray cat strutting fruitlessly along the gray fence in a gray backyard across the alley. It looked over its shoulder at her as if it knew her secret shame. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only a dollar eighty-seven with which to buy Jim a present. The cat shook its rump and raised its tail in her direction and then continued its patrol of its neighborhood kingdom. She wanted to protest, to justify herself to the old Tom. Twenty dollars a week doesn't go far. Expenses are greater than I calculated. Like they always are. But it didn't change the fact that she had only a dollar eighty-seven to buy a present for Jim. And all these long months she'd cheered herself with her plans of buying something nice for him. Something fine and rare and sterling. Something worthy of being owned by a man like him. Before the cat absconded from the fence, Della whirled from the window with a sudden notion. There was a small strip mirror inlaid between the windows of the room. You've probably never seen what they used to call pier glass in an $8 flat. But if you have, you'll know that a very thin and very agile person may by observing her reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of her looks. Della, being slender and having no other mirror, had mastered the art. In the glass, her eyes were shining brilliantly. Rapidly, she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length, and though her eyes still shone, her face drained of color within twenty seconds. You see... There were two possessions in which the nascent family in the undersized flat took great pride. One was Jim's gold watch, passed down to him from his father and his grandfather before that who'd brought it over from Switzerland when he'd left his job in a watch factory to seek a better life across the sea. The other was Della's hair, flowing like a thousand discreet waterfalls. She dared not show it out in public for fear of being followed, and she only trimmed it to remove the split ends. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window some days to dry, just to deprecate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. And had King Solomon been the janitor, with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed, just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. There were small vanities, the only sort they could afford, and they treasured them all the more for it. In the pier glass, Della's brown hair reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her. And then she did it up again nervously and quickly, closing her eyes to hold in tears of a different sort. On went her old brown jacket, on went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and a brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. When she stopped, the sign read, Madame Sanfrey, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself, panting. Madame, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked this all free. Will you buy my hair? I buy hair. Take your hat off and let's have a sight at the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars. She lifted the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, before I change my mind. The next two hours tripped by on rosy wings, if you'll forgive the purple metaphor. She was into one store and out the other, ransacking each one for Jim's present. Macy's didn't have it, nor Woolworth's. The neighborhood shops didn't seem to have anything that would suit, and she walked further and further afield until at last she found it in a little pawn shop on 7th Avenue. 
It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. A platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him. Quietness and value. The description applied to both. Twenty-one dollars they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the eighty-seven cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached her home, her intoxication gave way to a little prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages inflicted on her tresses by her foolish, wasteful generosity. Within forty minutes, no mean feat with just fire and metal as her tools, her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look a bit like a truant schoolboy. It would surely scandalize her parents, could they see her, but they were upstate and wouldn't see her till some of it had grown back. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, carefully, critically. She decided that she liked the impish effect. If Jim doesn't kill me before he takes a second look, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and eighty-seven cents? Seven o'clock found the cast-iron frying pan warming up on the back burner and the coffee freshly boiled on the front. The pork chops laid handsomely on the grizzled cutting board next to the stove, ready to go on as soon as Jim walked through the door, and she could predict, almost to the second, when that would be. He was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. When she heard his step on the stair away down the first flight, she turned white for just a moment. Please, God, make him think I'm still pretty. The door opened, and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious, his twenty-two years hanging so heavy on him that they might have been twice that number. His overcoat was darned and patched to the point where even the patches needed patches, and he walked slumped down with his hands each pushed up the other sleeve to protect his gloveless fingers from frostbite. Nevertheless, when Jim stepped inside the door, his eyes fixed upon Della, as intense as a setter at the scent of a quail. There was an expression in them that she could not read, and it frightened her. It wasn't anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with a most peculiar expression on his face. But Della had dared this much, and she felt she must press on. She wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold because I couldn't live through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim. Let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I got for you. You've cut off your hair. Jim spoke haltingly, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact yet, even after the hardest mental labor. Yes, cut it off and sold it. Don't you still like me just as well anyway? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. You say your hair is gone. As if he were an idiot in bedlam. Sold and gone too. It's Christmas Eve, boy. Be good to me. I did it for you. I love you. 
Shall I start dinner? Out of his trance, Jim seemed to quickly wake. He enfolded Della as he held her close, smelling her newly cropped hair and feeling her warmth. And he wondered, when the Magi quested for their star from the east, where was the true value in their gifts? Jim wondered if he'd gotten that answer wrong all the years he'd heard the story from the time he could understand the words. He drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. No, no, that's not what I meant. There's nothing you could do to your hair that would make me like you any less. It's just if you unwrap the package, you'll see why you had me going. Trembling fingers, pale and nimble, tore at the string and the paper, and in the ecstatic scream of joy, and then tears and exclamations of joy and sorrow all wrapped up together, calling Jim to immediate duty for embracing and soothing both. On the table, in scraps of paper and string, lay the combs. The set of combs, side and back, that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the now-vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now... They were hers, but the tresses in which the coveted adornments should be proudly displayed were gone. But she picked them up and hugged them to her breast, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and smile and say, My hair grows so fast. And then Della leaped up a little like a singed cat and cried, Oh, oh! Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm, the dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and laughed. <laughs> Del, let's put our Christmas presents away for a while. They're just too nice to use right now. I, <laughs> I sold the watch to get money to buy your combs. Now, why don't you go put the chops on? Magi are seers, astrologers of a forgotten empire who foretold the future by looking at the heavens. Once upon a time, some set out across the desert at the prompting of a remarkable light in the sky. The art of giving Christmas presents, inexact and faltering, is practiced across many countries in the known worlds. Theirs are among the most remembered. After all, wizards descrying the future must know what gifts to bring without the risk of offense or duplication. But here we are at the end of this uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. It just may be that such short-sighted foolishness is better than wisdom in matters of giving gifts, for in their folly they each gave the other that love which they already had but so easily forgot about. If the ancient wisdom comes down to us today, it is in fools such as these. They are the wisest among us. They are magi.